0: we welcome you to the media ministry of denton bible church well good morning i am chris cobble i'm on staff i'm one of the pastors in the missions department here at denton bible church my role primarily is overseeing our btcp classes in about 25 countries around the world and i oversee our btcp class here at denton bible and i'm really happy to be with you this morning Last August, when I had an opportunity to preach, we started in 1 Peter, and I thought if it was okay with you guys, I'll just go ahead and continue in 1 Peter. That way, at this rate, by the time I retire, I'll have this series done. <laughs> you know, we're, we're currently in the middle of the 2020 Olympics, and so I've watched a little each night, and as I've watched, swimming's been the primary thing they've shown, and one of the things that's blown me away about swimming is the precision it's the mastery of the skill that these world-class athletes, uh, it's, it's, it's thinking about eight people in this pool that are all trained in different parts of the world by different coaches and different pools, and yet somehow, on a 200-meter race, they all finish within, you know, a few yards of each other, a, a second, second and a half. And I realize it's because they're all applying The same fundamentals. You know, my kids were on swim teams when they were younger, and and one of the interesting things in watching the Olympics is you realize that these world-class athletes are simply carrying out those same fundamentals that they learned in middle school. It's not like they got to some stage and suddenly got magic and got faster. They just committed to the fundamentals. Ask any coach in any sport and he'll tell you or she'll tell you the most important thing for an athlete is to master the fundamentals. When you watch an NBA game, it's not these guys are simply fundamentally handling the ball, fundamentally making great passes, fundamentally shooting the ball. Any sport's that way. And I think our text this morning is gonna give us four good fundamentals that we need to be continually working to master in our Christian walk, the fundamentals of walking by faith. You may remember First Peter is written by the apostle Peter from Rome. He's writing to people scattered throughout the area, Jews and Gentiles, the Jews, the diaspora who are not in the homeland. The Gentiles, he's going to call, uh, who reside as aliens, chosen sojourners, and they're experiencing persecution. They they're experiencing hard times. Now, it's not the death-defying persecution they're going to face a little later, but it's a culture that has a different worldview that considers them foolish. They're seeing social rejection. They're considered fools. They're enduring slander. They're being asked to compromise on what they believe. You know, the more I read First Peter and the more our culture progresses, the more I think First Peter becomes more and more relevant. As as Tommy says, we're not the home team anymore, in case you haven't noticed. And so these words are especially pertinent as we live in a culture whose worldview is shifting while we try to maintain a consistent understanding of the world around us. And so, we might think of First Peter as a, a manual for living, for a Christian living in a hostile world. Back in verses 3 to 9, Peter spent time, this is what we looked at last year, Peter spends time talking about the mindset, the focus of our mental inheritance, of, of our eternal inheritance as we endure trials, recognizing that those trials are actually refining our faith, so that we have to fix our mind on the eternal, understanding that. And then in verse 10 to 12, Peter spent time explaining that the gospel message isn't a new thing. This is actually a continuation of the plan from the beginning, and the prophets looked forward to it. This is our inheritance, is the gospel So so to this point, we might summarize the first 12 verses by saying that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us new birth according to his abundant mercy into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ into an imperishable, pristine, and unfading inheritance. So, In our text today, we're going to see these four fundamental. Peter's going to give us four fundamental exhortations. He's going to tell us, first of all, to set our hope fully on the grace that's going to be given to us, to look forward to eternity. Second, he's going to exhort us to become holy. Third, he'll encourage us or exhort us to conduct ourselves with fear or reverence toward God, And then finally, he's going to tell us to love one another earnestly as a result of the other three. So we're going to look at these four exhortations and see how they form a fundamental framework for us as we walk with God. Let's start together in verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, the therefore is significant. Everything we said before, you have an eternal, unperishable, pristine, unfading inheritance that's yours. Therefore, he's going to tell us what to do. In light of what we know we need to conform our behavior. He says, preparing your minds for action. Literally, it reads, girding up the loins of your mind. You know, if you wear a long flowing robe, to get ready, you got to wrap that robe and bring it up and tuck it into your belt. And that's the image that Peter gives us with our minds. Prepare your minds for action. There's, There's probably an image here that goes back to the Passovers as As the children of Israel were about to leave Egypt, God tells them to be prepared, to have your belts fastened, have your sandals on your feet, be ready. You know, today we might say, roll up your shirt sleeves and get ready to work. Prepare your mind for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. And while you're preparing your mind for action, you're being sober-minded and the idea here isn't that you're avoiding intoxication. The idea is in the New Testament of sober-minded is that you're being self-controlled, that you're balanced, you're exercising good judgment, you're collected. Preparing your minds for action, being self-controlled. I think back to middle school, elementary school. Sometime in my younger years, I was in the, in the Cub Scouts, And I remember going to a day camp, and at that day camp, one of the days we got to learn to be in a canoe. And as required, they they put us through a training session, and they explained what we were to do in the canoe. But as a kid, I I heard it differently than I think they intended. So as a kid, they say, you know, if you fall out of the canoe, just make sure you put your feet downstream so that if you hit a rock, you won't crack your head. And be really careful not to sway in your canoe or it might flip over and you can drown. And oh, by the way, here's a helmet we're going to put on you in case you fall out and can't get your feet downstream. And I was scared to death. I think they thought they were encouraging and preparing, but all I could hear was, don't die, don't die, don't die. I was terrified. Almost 40 years later, and I still remember that feeling of panic. And me and my friend are in a canoe, and, and he had to think, what is going on with this kid? It's one of the few memories I have where I was just too scared to do anything. And we start down the, the, the river. It was more of a creek. And we start down the river, and I'm just in panic mode. And it got to the point where my friend John looked around, and his dad was our den leader, and they ended up switching canoes. And I was kind of okay then. But, like, I look back with some embarrassment, but, man, I couldn't turn it off. I was just scared, envisioning my head bashing against a rock. This particular river, I kid you not, is like six or eight inches deep. I was never in actual fear, but dude, I was convinced. And I couldn't do anything about it. It was like boom, boom, boom. And that's what we do a lot of times in life. Maybe not that controlled, but we fix our eyes on, on, on the temporary things in front of us and we get scared to death. And you know, stress and pressure can cause us to lash out in ways that we wouldn't normally do it. So, Peter says, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, being self-controlled, fix your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. It's not a passive thing. It's not something that you just sit back and hope it happens. It's an exhortation. Fix your mind on the grace to be given to you it's a mindset. And we're not talking about optimism. We're not talking about wishful thinking. This grace, it will be revealed to us. You can bank on it. So fix your hope there. We live according to the reality of the hope. We live what we believe. If you fix your eyes on the current pressure you're facing, you'll be like me in that canoe. Fixing your eyes on what's in front of you leads to anxiety. It leads to fear. It leads to a desire to escape into things that we shouldn't be escaping into just to avoid the pressure. Those aren't God's solutions. God's solution is to fix your eyes fully on the eternal, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of you know my wife, Antonia. Uh, we have six kids. And Antonia had, to call them difficult pregnancies would be an understatement. She had a condition that from, from, from the day she became pregnant till the day the babies were born, she was nauseous and throwing up. She had to be hospitalized with, most of the ki- mo- with almost all the kids for dehydration. With one of the kids, they had to hook a pump up to her leg. I had to give her a catheter every three days in her leg. Uh, to, to, to send anti-nausea medication through her. Over the course of all her pregnancies, she averaged a f- total weight gain of about five pounds. And that's not good for 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 an eight or nine pound baby. That means she lost weight, actually, over the course of the pregnancy. The last couple of babies, she had high blood pressure and had to go on bed rest for a few months. And people would be like, what are you guys thinking? And I would be like, are we, I mean, are, are you sure we want to have more kids? But I will tell you, if we had time, why would she do it? I could bring our six kids up here, and you guys would see. She knew that that suffering and that hardship was worth it because of what was coming. And I think that's what Peter's pointing to here. Prepare your mind for action. Be self control Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. We've got to adjust our minds to live for the eternal. You know, my hope, I, if I'm honest with myself, my hope a lot of time, it's, it's on my next meal or on my next vacation or on the next ball game I get to watch. Maybe it's on that time in the future when life is suddenly going to get better or the next election or the next holiday. Sometimes it's as simple as just, I want to fix it on social media or in the games I'm playing on my phone, the news cycle, what's the latest thing that happened in the world? A lot of times these aren't bad things, but they're not things that we should be fixing our hope to. Part of our problem here in our city and our culture is that we have been blessed. We have relative wealth. We have a lot of opportunities. So the thing is, most of us have the means to a point to fix our eyes on the temporary. And we can often make it day by day doing okay if I just fix my eyes on the temporary because I've got enough things that I can do that. The problem with that is disappointment is always the result of misplaced hope. No matter how many of those things you have, eventually they're gonna let you down. So our first exhortation is to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Let's look at the second exhortation. Peter goes on, he says, "'As obedient children,' do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. J.C. Ryle, in his collection of papers on holiness, says this. He says, I have a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. He's writing from the UK. He says politics or controversy or party party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety in too many of us the subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. It's really interesting when you recognize he wrote these words almost 150 years ago. Did you catch that? Politics, controversy, party spirit, worldliness have eaten the heart of lively piety. I know that's true of us so often. We get distracted. So what is holiness? He goes on to say, it's not knowledge. Balaam had knowledge. It's not a great profession of faith. Judas Iscariot had a great profession of faith. It's not doing many things. Herod did many things. It's not zeal for certain matters in religion. Jehu had that. It's not morality and outward respectability of conduct. The rich young ruler had that. It's not taking pleasure in hearing preachers. The Jews during Ezekiel's time did that. It's not keeping company with godly people. Joab and Gehazi did that. And yet, none of these men were holy. A man can have any one of these and never see the Lord. So, what is holiness? Let's go back to Peter. Negatively, Peter explains don't be conformed to the pattern of your former ignorance. Don't go back to the desires that you had pre salvation. Don't go back. He says, as obedient children, or we might say children with a spirit of obedience, he's he's given them credit here, as children of a spirit of obedience, don't go back. Self-indulgence is a characteristic of people who are ignorant of God. It's interesting, though. I think the fact that he tells us to go back, what does that tell us about the desires themselves? They don't go away. You know, as as a young person, I was confused by this. When I placed my faith in Christ at a young age, I was confused because I still had a lot of the same fleshly desires that I had prior to my conversion. And I mistakenly thought that meant it probably didn't take. Because most of the people I was around, they seemed to have it all together. They put it together well on Sunday mornings. and, And here I was struggling with the same dang stuff I was struggling with before. I think the fact that Peter tells us not to go back lets you know that those desires are probably going to be struggles the rest of your life to different levels, to different, to different extent, but don't expect it to go away. Don't give in. Don't conform to those old ways. I think there's a second observation. So, so if I'm a Christian and I have those desires, is it possible for me to actually do it? Of course it is. He tells you not to. He wouldn't tell you not to if you couldn't do it. So the desires don't necessarily go away, and true Christians can still struggle with sin. They can still fall into sin. Don't be surprised. But he, but he, gives, us a, he gives us a description. What is it like when we do that? It's like going back to our former ignorance. Why would you do that? Why would you go back to live like you lived when you didn't know better? Don't do it. So what does it actually mean to be holy? Well, the word holy means set apart or separated, and and the standard that Peter gives us for holiness is God Himself, be holy as I am holy. And so we have to remember that God is our standard of holiness. And, and the idea that he's painting here, it's, it's, it's more of the standard of, it's, it's become holy. I need to take a second and just describe, you know, when we become Christians, we are justified. Meaning that Jesus' death in our place has made us completely righteous before God. His righteousness is imputed to us so that when God sees you and me, He doesn't see guilty people set free. He literally sees us as if we've never sinned because Christ's righteousness is credited to my account. And so nothing I can do, good or bad, can change that if my faith is in Christ. And so Peter's not saying here, make yourself more holy in God's eyes because we can't do that. We're already there. That's justification. He's talking about sanctification, though, the process by which... In this body, we are being conformed to God's character. So, become holy, it's the idea of a pursuit. We might say that being holy is conforming our thinking and our behavior to God's character. In the Old Testament, this is how the law operates, right? it's, It's setting Israel apart from the nation to communicate that God's ways are distinct from the world's ways. We are to identify with Him by being set apart and relating to the world on God's terms. We relate to the world on God's terms. Think about it. We don't relate to God on the world's terms. That's what they're telling us to do. We relate to the world on God's terms. That's holiness. His standard is the standard. We look at the world through His terms. So Peter's saying that the reader's being holy is a call to live in an obedient relationship with God in a way that sets us apart from the customs and values of an unbelieving culture. We're different. We don't live like we used to when we did whatever we felt like. Even when the world tells us it's okay. The world tells us it's okay to be preoccupied with money. It's okay to be preoccupied with power, with sex, with politics, with sports, with social media, with the news cycle. The world says it's okay. You need to immerse yourself in them. But we're to live different. Not just religiously different. Not just what we say. Not just in the events we go to. We need to be actually conformed and transformed to be holy. This is God's desire throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, is to create a people who morally conform to his standard. Not weird people, but people who conform to his standard. We're not talking about self-righteous here. We're not talking about moralism here. You know, a lot of times in our churches and in our church, we can, we can sort of come and get this idea that, that I need to stay in a in a, in a, in a standard, area here, you know, the bell curve, I don't want to be off to one side where I'm doing really, really bad things, and I get kicked out, but I also don't want to be too pious because people will think I'm standoffish. And so we kind of just jump into the, to the mediocre norm of, of what the body looks like. That's not at all what Peter's saying here. He's saying you need to be conformed to God's standard, His holiness is our standard. And you know what? There's a a fruit that bears out of this that Peter's going to talk about in a couple places a little later. Peter tells us that holiness is actually attractive. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, "'Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, "'so that when they speak against you as evildoers,' they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. He goes on in chapter 3, it's, it's not apologetics that Peter encourages to win over an unbelieving spouse. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be one without a word." by the conduct of their wives when they see you respectful and pure in your conduct. Guys, the world around us is drinking sand and they're pretending to be happy about it and they're putting commercials out for us to watch about how wonderful it is to drink this sand. Live life however you want and it'll bring happiness. Make money and it'll bring happiness. Engage in pleasure, and it'll be happiness. Buy my things, and it'll bring happiness. And you know what? I suspect they all really understand the truth. I think they've drunk enough of that sand to realize it doesn't lead them to happiness. And so when we step in with holy conduct, with a holy life that's been transformed, set apart some of them may just look up and say, you know, there's something different. And I want that. That's the product. That's what we are called to do. Our lives are to be lived in such a way to set us apart. For the next exhortation, Peter reminds us of our special relationship with God because of our new birth. And he points out that we need to remember who he is and display the reverence that he deserves. Look at verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each man's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver, or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." You see the exhortation there, right? Conduct yourselves in fear. And it actually should be emphatic. It should say, in fear, conduct yourselves. But what's Peter talking about when he says fear? There's two types of fear in the Bible. The first is, is the scared kind, the, the afraid kind, fright, frightfulness. And that's always negative, always unhealthy. In John 7, 13 He says, "Out of fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him, meaning Jesus." Hebrews 2: "Through fear of death as a negative thing. That's not the fear that Peter's talking about in this exhortation. He's, he's talking about the idea of reverence. In the Bible, we see reverence pointed towards men, and we see reverence pointing towards God. And when reverence is pointed towards men, it's always a command to the office, not the character. When fear is directed at men, it's always the office. Peter says in 2.18, uh, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, with all fear. Not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Why? Because your reverence, your fear is pointed to their authority and their office, and it's not contingent on their character. But when fear is directed towards God, it's always based on His character, righteousness, and holiness. So why do we fear God? Why do we revere God? First, we would say because of his character. Look there in verse 17. You call him Father who judges impartially. An impartial judge. He doesn't base things on the person in front of him, only the facts. He's a judge that can't be bought. I suspect we can't even imagine this kind of a judge. That even the best of of our system still takes the person in front of us into character. But not God. He impartially judges. His character is perfect. He's unable to be bought. So we 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 rever him, revere him because of his character, but also we fear him because of our doctrine. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So so the first area of doctrine. Is that we know. Knowledge is always the foundation of conduct. He said, The idea is, He redeemed us, you know that, then you fear Him. Knowing is a linking verb to this redemption, to how you respond. Romans 5, three, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. First Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12.1, concerning the spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be ignorant. They had conduct problems in Corinth, and, and Paul's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, I want you to know, because he understands that knowledge is always the foundation of our conduct. James 1, 2, and 3. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know. So you know that you've been redeemed, so fear God. That's a doctrinal idea. But let's talk for a second about the doctrine of redemption. There would have been three kind of people In this first century church that that Peter's addressing, there would have been slaves, there would have been freedmen who had previously been slaves, and there would have been free men. And they would have all understood this process of redemption. Because if you were a slave, you probably were there for for one of a number of reasons. First of all, you may have been uh, taken captive in war. Second, you may have gone bankrupt and there was no bankruptcy court to dismiss your debt. You had to pay it. Third, you might, have been, you might have sold yourself into slavery because you were destitute and needed to provide a way out. Or fourth, you may have been born into it. But one of the things all the people in this audience would have understood was the idea of a ransom or a redemption. You see, they were able to work on the side at, in maybe a side hustle to earn money so that over time they were able to purchase their freedom. The word is Lutron. They would pay this ransom to buy their freedom. So they were constantly scraping on the side to save up that money. It's the same word that in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give himself a Lutron for many, a ransom. And so, Peter, to his audience, they would have had a very crystal idea of, of what he was saying when he says, you fear God, if you call him, I'm, I'm sorry, knowing that you were ransomed, they would have understood immediately. He purchased their freedom, and to them it would have been really tangible, in the Old Testament, we see money redemption in Leviticus 25. There are a couple provisions in the law that, you know, if, if, you, are, if you lose your land, then a family member can purchase that land and, or should purchase that land and redeem it back to the family. There's another case in Leviticus 25 when if, if someone is destitute and has to sell themselves and has no means to take care of it, that a brother is to come in and to redeem them, to take care of them, to provide them. But the Bible also talks in the Old Testament about non-monetary redemption. It's the image we get, of the blood of the lamb at the Passover, redemption on the basis of blood. Isaiah is going to say in Isaiah 52, God says, you will be redeemed without money. It's a far more valuable redemption that happens without money. It's not perishable. Peter says it's infinitely value, perfect, unblemished. It purchased us from sin and provided us with salvation. What are we redeemed from? Our feudal ways, inherited from our fathers, traditions that, that we were headed to eternal damnation separated from God. And this redemption took care of that. We were aimless, powerless, useless, headed for damnation. You know, think with me just a second, back to Leviticus 25. If you lived in Israel, and you had fallen on impossible times, and you had lost your land, you had lost everything, and you looked down at your road, in the future and all you saw was servanthood, servitude. You had no chance to build anything for your kids. You had no chance to even have any nice things in your life, you're hopeless. And then imagine how you feel when a family member shows up and says I'm paying your redemption, I'm paying your ransom, you're out, you're free, you have a future. It's not hopeless anymore. If any of you guys have ever been in massive debt, that feeling when it's gone, the oppression you felt when it was on your shoulders that I will never own a house, I will never have a 401k, I will never X, Y, and Z. And a family member shows up and says, it's done, it's taken care of. Can you imagine the relief you would have felt And now multiply that by about seven trillion billion infinity. And that's the redemption that we have. It should blow us away. How can we think about that and think of it as ordinary? He says it's been manifest for our sake. We see it. How can we be so casual about it? Sure, I've been redeemed, I've been saved. If we truly understand what He's done for us by paying that redemption, we would have no choice but to be blown away by reverence to God, to be in constant awe of what He did, to live in wonder that the God of the universe didn't just let us endure the consequences of our own decisions, but He redeemed us. He purchased us in the most expensive way it could be done. So, our attitude to God should and could be reverential and confident as we endure hardship and suffering. Now, these first three exhortations have really talked more about our relationship with God. For the fourth exhortation, Peter's going to shift gears and kind of talk about how we're all to to take care of each other, that there's a a horizontal consequence to this vertical truth. and the word of the, but the word of the lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you in light of our future in light of the gospel having purified your souls. It's the idea of the inner transformation that happened. And how did it happen? Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. As we become holy, as he conforms us to his image, our hearts are purified, and the direct results of that is a sincere brotherly love for one another. So the result of our pure inner life is an unhypocritical love for the brethren. The love he's talking about here is unconditional. He's not talking about romantic love. He's not talking about brotherly love. It's an unconditional love that truly delights in what's best for others. It's a true benevolence that isn't worried at all about what I get back out of this. It's selfless. It's others focused. We live in a culture that tells us to love ourselves, that we should maintain good self care, that we need to avoid negativity or anything negative. Our culture tells us that selfishness to a point is okay. You need to live according to your truth, whatever you feel. You do you. It's nothing new. The world thinks that's how we build unity? Well, let's go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. They thought they could build unity their own way. We see an attempt at unity in Revelation 17 and 18, Babylon the Great. Man's attempt at unity, though, don't work. God's way is always self-s- self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice looking for the good of others. Warren Wiersbe said, if we try to build unity in the church on the basis of our first birth, we fail. But if we build unity on the basis of the new birth, it will succeed. From a pure heart, he says, the stress lies on the inwardness of this love. This has to be a commitment in my heart. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interest but the interests of others. And then Peter goes on to say that we do this fervently. We do it earnestly. The emphasis, the idea is to stretch. It's not the amount of love. It's the duration of love. This is a a long-term lifestyle decision. It's also interesting, back in verse 3 of chapter 1, Peter says our new birth is actually the beginning point of our blessings The new birth is the beginning point of the blessings we receive. But here in 23, he says the new birth is actually also the beginning of your opportunity to bless others. That if, that if I'm only receiving the blessing, I'm not putting it out, I'm not doing it right. The new birth both brings blessing to me, but the new birth also exhorts me to be a blessing to others. So we would say obedience to the truth produces a sincere love for the brethren. Look around. There's How do we do it? What's our motivation? You know, it, it's easy to say this in a church service, but you're asking me to start laying down my life, to start not looking at my own needs above others. You're asking me to actually go against the world system that says we need to, to, to make our own way. You're actually asking me to commit to something in in helping others more than myself that's scary why do we do that all flesh is like grass all glory like the flower of grass the grass withers the flower falls but the word of the lord remains forever it's because god says this is truth this is the only way it works it's a mirage to think that pursuing your own way get you what you want. The truth is upside down by giving your life away. He who loses his life for my sake, he who seeks to gain his life will lose it. It's upside down. We have to just trust that even when we don't feel like it. Our lives should be marked with a sincere desire to see the best for others. We should look for ways to actively consider others more important than ourselves. We should look different from the culture that tells us to seek our own. So who around you needs help? What gifts do you bring to the table? Do you have physical skills that benefit others? Are you gifted in acts of service that you can use? Are you wise that you can spend time and counsel others as they need help? What about money? Do you have an abundance of money that you might bless others with and help others? Time, other resources? Maybe it's something as simple as when you come to church not being so preoccupied with getting in, getting out, being preoccupied with what you've got to do here at church today, but you actually pick your head up and encourage someone that's here. You listen to someone. You don't gather into your clusters, but you look for for folks to engage and encourage. Or maybe it's taking the gospel to a dying world, communicating the greatest message of love as an act of love to a dying world, engaging people in your community, in your neighborhood, at your work, with the truth of the gospel. So, Peter's given us four exhortations, four basic ideas. Set your hope fully on God's grace, become holy, conduct yourselves with fear or reverence to God, and then love one another earnestly. And and I want to kind of end by challenging you not to just let this be something that comes in one ear and goes out the other and says, those are some great points. I affirm that they are true. But that you would recognize Peter is giving us here fundamentals for the Christian life. These aren't things that are easy. They're somewhat simple. It's not rocket science, but it's not easy. It's like when a basketball coach has a third grader and he tells him that he needs to learn to dribble with his offhand, it's a mess. And if he never works at it, he, he'll be a 12th grader that still can't handle the ball. But if he, if he recognizes where he's at, he spends some time, he develops the fundamental skill. As he grows, he gets better. And that's, that's what Peter's telling us here. Look at these exhortations. Let them filter through your life. Master the fundamentals. There's nothing on this list that you and I can't pursue. We won't get it perfect, but there's nothing that we can't pursue on this list. There's nothing that we look at and say, I'd never be there, so I'm going to give up at the beginning. And so what I want you to do is later today or sometime this week, I would ask you to work through these four questions related to these exhortations. Number one, are you committed to an eternal perspective? or Are you caught up looking at what's in front of you? Are you stressed out by the current situation you're in? Or do you recognize it's temporary? Are you committed to an eternal perspective? Number two, are you truly pursuing holiness in all areas of your life? Or are you just doing the status quo? You're doing good enough to get by, not really thinking about it a lot? Am I truly pursuing personal holiness in my mind and in my actions. Number three, do you have a reverence and fear for the Lord? Do you live in wonder, reflecting and thinking and processing through the redemption that he paid for you? Or do you just yawn it off? What would it take for you to actively cultivate in your heart a sense of wonder? And then finally, are you bearing fruit in your love for others? Or are you trying to make your own way, trying to gain your own things, trying to meet your own needs? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this challenging word from, from Peter. And while it is simple, it's difficult. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be penetrated as we take this text into account, this truth, these things that we know, I would ask that your spirit would lead us all in the ability to look at ourselves, to evaluate ourselves, to wrestle with these truths, to take an honest assessment and evaluation of how we're doing. And Lord, we also know that we regularly fall short, and we are so thankful that you have redeemed us, that you have paid our ransom, you have declared us righteous and holy because of our faith in you. And so you are not calling us to perform, but you are calling us to be conformed to your character. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.